0: Welcome to Greenwood Forest, a podcast for people who love when Jesus flips tables over. We're excited to be here today to talk about our most recent sermon series, Jesus Uncensored, and all that's uh, happened around here since the last podcast episode. Uh, I'm Stephen Stacks, and also with me at the table is Lauren Evert. Hey Stephen. And Wes Spears Newsom? Hi Stephen. Okay, so one of the um, unplanned recurring themes in this series wound up being the temptation to live a quiet life, free from the conflict and strife that comes, that often comes with following Jesus. Um, let's talk about that. How are you tempted by that?
1: How does that show up in your life and your ministry? I think um, since I I kind of started us off that kind of path when I was talking about the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness, I was trying to think of all the ways that um, temptation is not so obvious um, as the way that it's, like, depicted in some of the other gospel narratives. Mm -hmm. Like, with Luke's telling of the temptation, like it's obvious that like the devil is tempting Jesus and he's giving these specific things like we know who the players are and what's happening Um, and it's not so obvious for us and the thing that I I found um, maybe most tempting in a lot of the conflict that our church is engaged in and a lot of the uh, things that we've had to say and the things we've had to do in recent months is It'd be a whole lot easier to not do anything. (laughs) It'd be a whole lot easier just to sit down and be quiet and go about our days and not really worry about what's going on in the world or even what's happening to each other and just go kind of quietly into the dark. But that that God calls us to more than that. Mm -hmm. Um, God doesn't call us to comfort and um, an ease of life, but God calls us to something more. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things that, um,
0: struck me about that, uh, phrase and the kind of the way it connected with our congregation is that, you know, we, um, in our context in the, the town that, that our church is in, um, a lot of other churches in town and, and even, you know, this church, um, could be lulled into thinking that being a church in a suburban town, uh. You know, there's not too much that you need to address. There's these like pressing issues of the day are really more for the the downtown churches and the, the churches who are in the big cities and the places where all this stuff happens, and that you know, the churches out here in the in the sleepy suburbs, um, you know, we just we're just here to be nice places um who who come to worship and that this stuff doesn't really touch us. We're in the bubble, right? Um and I think uh it's important for us to remember that you know stuff like what happened to Gilles is happening all around us regardless of where the church is um and we are tempted as people who have uh, who live in in this environment um and i you could kind of speak broadly about people who live in the united states too in general about this in comparison to the rest of the world but um We are definitely, one of our great temptations is to just not lean into this conflict um, and to not use our power and our voices to try and make a difference, but to just take take the path of least resistance.
2: Well, maybe it's also tempting to do that because it's not because maybe we don't care. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's because we're overwhelmed, Mm -hmm. right? And the temptation to just be overwhelmed by all the many issues um, and then just sort of check out and not care about any of them, right? So this would be a time when I think, you know, yeah, Wes was talking about in his sermon, sometimes I feel like it would be great to live a quiet life and I was sitting there thinking, this would be really great to have a job where we actually did work from 8 to 5 and I'll go home and not think about anything else, right? Um, And I think a lot of our lay people probably feel the same way, right? Mm -hmm. Um, You know, what does it mean uh, to not ever be able to check out and to constantly feel overwhelmed or be pulled in a thousand different directions right um and i think that you know the temptation is to put idols around other things right i mean as a mom like i often feel guilty about what how much time i don't spend with my child right um and i think some of the temptation to a quiet life is not for for bad things it's for good things right um that maybe we just want to be left alone or maybe we want to have respite or, um, you know, what does it look like when you really try to live in solidarity with somebody um, who's suffering?
0: Yeah. And that's the, the picture of temptation that we get in our foundational story about temptation in the garden mm-hmm. is, is not something that is obviously evil, but We are tempted by things that we think are good for us, that are that are appealing to the eye and are good for wisdom and are good for sustenance, right? I mean it's not it's it looks appealing to live a life where your only responsibility is to yourself and to your family and and to to live a, you know, nice, comfortable life. Right. And then I
2: think what I'm actually teaching My children, right? Right. Right. (laughs) What am I actually teaching my children by doing that, right? And, um, you know, even as a a three-and-a-half-year-old child, Isaac is very much aware of the Jill story. And he's talked to him on the phone. And when he has play birthday parties at our house, he's having them for Jill. And he wants to know if Jill's coming home, right? Um, And have to kind of stand back and say, okay, (laughs) you know, maybe I was tempted to live a quiet life. Um, But what are we actually teaching our children um, by resisting that temptation.
0: Yeah, I mean, one of the most powerful things you said during your sermon, most powerful things to me, Wes, was when you said, as much as I want that, Satan wants it for me more, mm-hmm. right? Um, because you think about a world where everyone is just absorbed by, you know, this idea that they just are only, like, they only have to care about their insulated family unit. unit. Um, and the gospel call is... To completely deconstruct that false boundary and to consider everyone, your family, including your enemies, right, mm-hmm. is to is to to move beyond, and that and it's it's a it's a vision of um, abundance, but also one that we're uncomfortable with, you know. Yeah,
1: you know, like that's the whole. Purpose of church in the New Testament right is to to override and to like to overrule and to expand the boundaries of kinship and family that the metaphors that Paul uses so frequently there's like there's two of them there's he refers to his brothers and sisters mm-hmm. in Christ and that's like deliberate familial language to embrace other people as his family who are not his blood family and Paul also uses the language of amnesty and citizenship. Mm-hmm. That we who were once not part of the Commonwealth of Israel, he says in Ephesians, became citizens in that, in the, the people of God. And if that's so fundamental to our salvation, that Those are the kind of primary metaphors that the New Testament uses Mm. to talk about the inclusion that comes with salvation. There's no way that we can live a quiet life confined to our own nuclear families.
0: Um, So I think um, one of the things that also came out in this In this Lent, during the sermon series for us as a a congregation, is the tension between that idea, what we've just talked about, is this idea of inclusion in God's family, of uh, love that breaks down the barriers of our nuclear families and extends to um, people who we wouldn't normally um, extend that love to. Um, At the same time, uh, we were confronting. Uh, specific instances of um, what we called evil uh, in our worship services, especially with the situation with regard to Gilles' deportation and and ICE's actions during that. Um, And we heard from a lot of, uh, well, we heard from a few lay people who were kind of, um, couldn't put those two things together in their mind of us being um, an inclusive community of faith, but also calling out Specific behaviors and calling certain things sin, you know, calling things evil that ICE was doing, um, and one one like very specific sticking point for a lot of people was the uh, the prayer that you prayed after Jill was deported west. So, um, can you walk us through like what the what the um, the thought process was for that and and how that fits in with this idea that we were just talking about?
1: Yeah. so every week we have and worship the prayers of the people in which we pray for the earth, we pray for the world, and we pray for the church. And the Sunday, which was, was it the day after Jill was deported, or it was two days after Jill was reported? It was <laughs> Two deported. days,
0: Friday was deported on a Friday. Yeah,
1: um... In the prayer for prayers of the people for that Sunday, I opted to break our normal routine um, with that and to pray for Gilles and to pray for our enemies and to pray for our church specifically in the in the wake of this situation. In um, the the middle section of the prayers of the people, um, I think is worth listening to before I talk about it. God, you tell us to pray for our enemies. First, we pray for your judgment and your justice upon them. We pray for your judgment and your justice for deportation officer, Chuck Kelly, who promised Gilles he wouldn't be deported without warning. But when orders came, he followed them without question. We pray for your judgment and your justice, for ICE official David Kendi, who ordered Gilles to be detained, lied about the reasons for it, and sent Gilles to a concentration camp. We pray for your judgment and your justice, for Chief Administrator James Arwood who runs the York County Detention Center in South Carolina, where Jill was detained without medical care, leading to his first of many hospitalizations. We pray for your judgment and your justice for the Corrections Corporation of America and its CEO, Damon T. Hinninger, who runs the Stewart Detention Center in Lumpkin, Georgia, an American concentration camp where Gilles almost died. He was hospitalized there multiple times due to lack of medical care. We pray for your judgment and your justice for the Atlanta City Detention Center, which holds captives for Immigration and Customs Enforcement, where Gilles spent his last days in the United States. We pray for your judgment and your justice for the ICE officers who oversaw Gilles' deportation, who did not give him the bag of clothes we provided for them, who stole Gilles' photo IDs and debit card, and who continue to serve an immoral cause. We pray for your judgment and your justice for Field Office Director Sean Gallagher, who repeatedly and personally rejected all of our efforts to help our brother Gilles. Sean Gallagher rejected Gilles' application for a stay of removal without reading it. Sean Gallagher rejected appeals from Senator Tom Tillis to reconsider his decision. Sean Gallagher told the court systems that Gilles had to go. Sean Gallagher lied about the medication available to Gilles in the Congo. Sean Gallagher lied about the danger that Gilles will face. Sean Gallagher serves only Caesar and will not listen to God. We pray for your judgment and your justice for the Secretary of Homeland Security, Kirsten Nielsen, who continues to enable heartless law enforcement by ICE and who refused to even speak with Congressman David Price when he advocated on Gilles' behalf. We pray for your judgment and your justice for President Donald Trump, whose instructions to ICE through Executive Order 13767 led directly to Gilles' deportation and his detention, whose encouragement to ICE has led them to boast about a 40% increase in administrative arrests of non-criminal and non-violent people like Gilles, and whose actions and rhetoric toward immigrants is contrary to the gospel of Jesus Christ. We pray for your judgment and your justice for the United States Congress, who have failed to enact any substantive immigration laws for decades, leaving a power vacuum that ICE has happily filled with deportations. Whether they are motivated by cowardice or malice, we pray for their repentance. We pray for your judgment and your justice for everyone who hates their neighbor, and everyone who fails to see the immigrant and the stranger as their neighbor. But we don't only pray for your judgment and your justice, God. We pray for all your enemies to hear the good news of your gospel and to repent of their wickedness and instead follow you. We pray that they would recognize their sins, that they would don sackcloth and ashes with us in mourning in the face of all the ways that they have wronged you. We pray that if their hearts cannot be softened, that they would be toppled from their thrones. We pray as Mary, Mother of God, taught us to pray, bring down the powerful from their thrones and lift up the lowly. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. So one of the reasons why I wanted to have that middle section of the prayers of the people is because one of the things that the New Testament is very explicit about is that we should pray for our enemies. Mm-hmm. Um, that's part of the Sermon on the Mount. That's part of, that's central to, to Christian ethics, is to pray for our enemies, not just be angry at them or like treat them as everybody else would treat their enemies. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think we often... Will settle in praying for our enemies to not praying, for, to settle for not praying for their conversion. Mm. Um, that we should not pray for our enemies to stay the same. We should pray for our enemies to encounter the radical grace of God that welcomed us into the, the community of salvation that is, that is the church. Um, So in that prayer, you heard me name a lot of specific people from Officer Chuck Kelly to um, Officer David Cundy to Sean Gallagher um, to even Donald Trump. And the reason that that I did that um, was not because of any kind of uncontrollable anger or like emotionalism um, that I had toward any of those people. Um, but because I thought we had a duty to be specific, mm-hmm. um, that we, we should be clear on the one hand who was responsible for what happened to a member of our church. Um, we should not talk ambiguously about it. Um, and I also think we should be specific because when we pray for our enemies, we should be praying for actual people. Because we, as much as we need to be clear about who has done evil, we also need to be clear for our own sake, who we view as our enemies. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, we'll never be able to figure out who we should be praying for, who we should be prompting to change and convert to the way of the gospel to repent. Um, if we don't, if we aren't specific, we're not going to. We're going to be trapped in generalities. Mm -hmm. and end up not saying anything, and end up angry at things we don't even know we're angry at.
2: And also not know how we're complicit in it, right?
1: Yes. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, you're making me think of um, uh,
0: the process of reconciliation um, and how it requires a reckoning with Mm -hmm. what happened first, Mm -hmm. right? So if you, for instance... um, uh, people who work on work in restorative justice work, um, who, who try to kind of break the um, the harm that retributive that our retributive justice system does to people. Um, if you're going to do restorative justice, the first step in that process has to be the confrontation with what was done um, that hurt the other person, right? So you can't just skip that step and go straight to well I know this person wronged me, um, I don't really know, I haven't really named it, but I, we're gonna go straight to it's all good. <clears throat> that short circuits the process mm-hmm. of reconciliation and doesn't allow for full reconciliation to happen. The things that have been done have to be named. Um, and that's, that's part of the process. You cannot have reconciliation without having, without having gotten specific about what it is that needs to be reconciled. And that's what I thought that prayer did really powerfully, was to say, these wrongs were done to Gilles um, by these people, right? And it's not our job to decide what the punishment for those things should be. That is God's job. But it is our job as the church to name that, that they were wrong and to call those people into... Uh, reconciliation and into a better way.
2: How do we as a church, right, if we're going to work towards justice for immigrants, um, people who are treated like Jill was, right, uh, how do we even go about that work if there's no tangibility to it? If we don't understand Mm -hmm. the systems with which we're working, if we don't understand how our very... Uh, detention centers and prison systems and our politicians are playing roles in that, right? It is not some abstract thing. We have to understand as a church how we tangibly are to get involved in that. And you can't do that without being clear about who's doing evil.
1: The other thing that I thought was um, could be challenging to folks is the idea that we were praying for judgment Mm -hmm. for all of these people. Um, Because I I grew up, and a lot of people in our church grew up, not all, but a lot, grew up where judgment was a very condemned, like a condemning word, in Mm -hmm. that it was all about fire Mm -hmm. and brimstone and hell and all of these things. Um, But I, I would love for us to understand that to pray for the judgment and justice of your enemy by God is the ultimate kind of nonviolent resistance Mm -hmm. to your enemy that Paul cites in Romans when talking about how to treat our enemies. He cites an old Psalm that says, vengeance is mine, says the Lord, I will repay. And to give over the judgment of a particular person in a particular situation, to God is to be far more merciful, perhaps than I would be. Mm. Um, and to give over judgment and justice to God is to say that I will not turn into my enemy. Yes I will not become the hate that I oppose. I hand this over to God, fully expecting that God will judge and make right this situation.
0: And also understanding that perhaps God will do what disappointed Jonah in the book of Jonah and be Mm -hmm. overly merciful, Mm -hmm. right? To not fulfill our expectations, Mm -hmm. but to extend hospitality far beyond what we would. But this is the point of uh you know of Paul saying vengeance God, God vengeance is up to the is up to God right is that we have to be able to not take that vengeance into our own hands um but we also have to be able to name what it is to God mm-hmm. that has damaged our community and damaged us right um and that's what I think the Psalms do so well that we, that we often ignore, um, is that the Psalms are, are uh, beautiful expressions sometimes of the full breadth of human emotion, including anger about things that have happened, um, but they always are giving that over to God, even when they're asking for God to do things that aren't, you know, that aren't merciful, right? Um, they are not, the reason they're talking to God about it is they're not doing it themselves. <laughs>
1: And, and, like, to be clear, we fought ICE every way that we knew how, mm-hmm. like, throughout this process. And, like, we should be unashamed in the continued identification of the things that ICE is doing as evil. Mm-hmm. Like, everyone in the United States citizens and non-citizens alike should be concerned at the authoritarian and totalitarian and fascistic frankly Mm -hmm. activities that ICE is engaging in Mm -hmm. Um, but that doesn't mean that we don't pray for their conversion Mm -hmm. we will do everything possible to prevent them from enacting the kind of world that they want to enact but we'll We won't do that by resorting to violence or becoming our enemy because vengeance belongs to God.
0: Um, This kind of uh, leads us into um, the next question that I was going to ask, and that's, um, we also had... um, some questions came up both in the scriptures and in our, um, you know, dealings with ice about, um, about anger. Uh, and what is the place of anger in Christian spirituality? Um, one of our passages during Lent was about Jesus overturning tables in the temple. Um, and we reflected a lot about anger in that sermon or Lauren did about uh, in that sermon. Um, so what do you all think is the place of anger, um, in our faith and our practice in Christian spirituality?
2: We've certainly been conditioned to think that it doesn't have a place, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and to be, I mean, this is North Carolina. Uh, I'm a South Carolinian. Uh, you know, Southerners don't like to do anger. Um, what they do, it's like said with a very nice syrupy voice, right? Um, or some sarcasm. Or behind someone's back. Or behind someone's <laughs> back, right? Can be also very, very, um, very evil, uh, just in a very interesting way. Um, you know, we don't want to be clear about it. And certainly, you know, I think a lot of us grew up thinking that, you know, if we don't have anything nice to say, that we shouldn't say anything, um, at all. And I think, you know, this, you know, Jesus shows us like in one of his uncensored moments, right? Um, walking into the temple, um, that there are things, uh, that are angering, right? That when we go against, um, God's ways for the world and when we witness injustice, Um, that it is time to turn over some tables um, and to get people's attention um, and to say no. Um, Certainly, going back to the Psalms, right, uh, we learned from the psalmist that uh, it's okay to voice our anger to God um, and we see God uh, through Jesus expressing anger, right? Um, And so I certainly think that anger in our spirituality should move us towards something, right? Um, That our anger... Um, should be about the same things that God is angry about, right? May we measure our anger um, based off of what angers God should be the same things that anger us um, and that our anger should lead to some sort of action, um, to a call for repentance, um, to a recognition of how uh, the way that we live in the world um, also contributes to those injustices, right? Um, I think our anger should lead certainly to
0: yeah I mean one of the things that's um, that I think we you know we do have to be careful about in this conversation is that anger can destroy a person right right and I don't think that that's what God wants for his her <laughs>
2: um,
0: disciples um, is to be consumed by um, anger, whether it's righteous or not right um, and I think that's actually a very real danger in the times that we live in is to be outraged all the time because we have access to every awful thing that's happening in the world more than ever. Um, one can be fatigued by outrage really quickly right now. And we all felt this during the process. Um, so I think, you know, I, this is when I, you know, again, to, to reference, uh, Ephesians, be angry but do not sin I think is a really powerful <laughs> uh, turn of phrase because I think um, there's something to uh, also the picture of God's anger in scripture that it's um, God gets angry and God quickly turns uh, to mercy um, and so there's there's never a, a dwelling in the anger so long that it turns back around, right? So I think um You know, if we are to put on the mind of Christ, to take take on the mind of Christ and try to be perfect as God is perfect, that requires us to understand what makes God angry. Mm -hmm. Um, But it also means that we have to be careful that that we aren't consumed by it, right? But that we are able to express it uh, in a healthy way, um, which again, uh, our scriptures testify... Clearly to us that it should be nonviolent, right. um, and so that's a conversation that we obviously need to have: how to be angry about sin, um, how to name name it clearly, but nonviolently. Um, it's, it's it's complicated, but it also is important for us to grasp.
1: We also got to be clear that God's angry about stuff. Yeah, right? <laughs> yeah. like yeah, <laughs> I think it's really easy for us to just kind of laps into what um, a religious sociologist called moral therapeutic deistic God. Mm-hmm. A God who is interested in us being moral. Right. A God who's interested in us feeling good. And a God who's fundamentally far off and not doing anything in the world. That mm-hmm. um, the default kind of American vision of God is like this. Yeah. That, that God has apparently a lot of Quarrels about sexuality and wants us to um, be comfortable and doesn't want really anything to do with the world. Mm-hmm. Um, that when you interrogate like a lot of people's notions of, of God, mm-hmm. that's what they end up articulating, and mm-hmm. that's not the God presented in scripture. Okay. Um, like the God that we know through scripture and It is one who gets angry about injustice to the poor and to the marginalized and to the oppressed. Like, the whole ministry of Jesus is premised on him in Luke saying, I've come here to set captives free. I've come here to dethrone kings. Like, um, and throughout the prophetic tradition of the Old Testament, it's this same thing, right? Compassion to the widows and to the orphans. Into the downtrodden at the expense of the empire, right? Some some
0: some uh, tirades against uh, oppressors and, and rich folk and the prophets that Sh- might strike us as quite angry. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> some some of Amos's speeches to mm-hmm. to people might might strike us as anger. And the question we have to um, answer is, you know, um, what's the place of that of that um, that kind of you know? Truths t- telling you know, and, and what's the goal of it? That's the other thing that you're talking about right. is it should lead us somewhere. Right. Productive anger um, rather we, than destructive we anger. We say that to
2: our children, right? We say, well, it's okay <clears throat> to get angry, but we have to still choose good actions, right? Um, but, you know, we can... Condoning, like, someone's feelings is, <laughs> is one thing, right? But to align it with God's anger is a whole other thing, right? Um, I don't know that I can be angry because something just made me upset, right? But I should be angry about the things that god is angry about um and then how do we how do we move and what exactly like what was jesus mad about in the temple right um when he was turning over the tables and he wasn't seeing their worship um you know they as something that could really even be happening because of how they were acting
0: um so so one of the things that i think um jesus is doing why his anger in the temple is productive rather than destructive is that um what he's doing is making room for people who have no space
1: because all these booths were set up in the part of the temple that was supposed to be reserved for gentiles and for women who aren't allowed in the other parts of the temple but they'd been crowded out of the space the small space that was afforded to them yeah so
0: so jesus's anger is is directed at, at practices and at people who are um trying to limit who has access to um to abundant life and to god and to and to you know the divine right so um you know one of the one of the things that we also um had you know Felt compelled to address during the sermon series was something that happened in our um, in our kind of denominational life as Baptists, uh, um, with the affirmation of a discriminatory hiring practice of one of our denominations. Um, and again, I think um, you know our response to that could be read as uh, overly. You know, harsh, or it's you know we're calling people out, we're you know it could seem uh, judgmental to some people, That's or reaction. not or not inclusive of all viewpoints mm-hmm. um, that we are kind of drawing uh, a line about what's right and what's not. Um, but I think the difference in what Jesus shows us with his with his productive anger is that God is working to bring people who have been kept out of, the, of the, uh, the temple, people who have not had a seat at the table into the fold, right? And that those who are trying to keep those people out are going to experience God's entry into their comfort as angry, perhaps, and as overturning something that they um, hold dear.
2: But you then. mean Mary didn't say lift up all people? You mean Mary said lift up the lowly? Is that, which <laughs> was that is.
0: That could be. Yeah. Maybe
1: Mary said it better. Yeah. I think there's like something <laughs> like essential there, right? That we need to notice is that so often we want to be conflict averse mm-hmm. to the point that we neglect to acknowledge that God takes sides, mm-hmm. that God is not neutral in this world that God has a vested interest in what happens in the world and that that interest is aligned with the interests of people who have been kept out with the people who have had things taken from them from the people who have been blocked from access to things that God cares about those people and we see that throughout Jesus' ministry and throughout the trajectory of the New Testament is always the widening of the circle Mm -hmm. of who is in this community that is revolutionizing the world. Yeah. And to be clear about what our denomination did, (laughs) the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship in 2000 adopted a hiring policy and a funding policy that limited that circle, Mm -hmm. that said LGBTQ people cannot be within this circle of fellowship. And what they did recently was fell short of of breaking the boundaries um, that were put on the fellowship. They adopted a hiring policy that explicitly didn't discriminate against LGBTQ people. But we know through published materials and conversations with CBF leadership that it still does discriminate. Against LGBTQ people in key leadership positions and in positions as missionaries. And I think in some ways we're expected to, to kind of valorize this mm. as the progress of what it is, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but, but to only go halfway towards someone's freedom and toward acknowledging someone's humanity and call from God is to go nowhere and you can't negotiate someone's humanity
0: right I mean I I think you know I'm struck by what you said earlier about God takes sides Mm -hmm. in our world and I think that's something that offends a lot of people's sensibilities Mm -hmm. Um, you know especially us good progressive folk Um, Mm -hmm. it's hard to hear I think sometimes it, it seems stark to us to hear that God takes sides, that God might be against some people.
1: Well, for a um, God who just wants us to be well behaved and comfortable right. and isn't involved in the activities in the world, like this picture of God that lots of Americans tacitly accept, right. that God doesn't take sides. Right. But the thing is that God wants this
0: world to be fundamentally made right, which, again, um, as Ellie Vizell put it, you know neutrality doesn't never helps the oppressed it always helps the oppressor so there is no way to be in the middle between forces that want to keep things the way they are and a god who wants to turn the world upside down so that it's right there's no way to to be moderate or neutral in that uh, endeavor and we want to be on god's side so the question is um, how do we discern where God is acting in the world? And again, this is where we rely on the testimony of Scripture as to who God, uh, whose side God is on, and who and who, who how God works and through whom, right? Um, but but neutrality is not an option. It's not an option if we want to be faithful. You're also making me think of. Uh, we would, we would never be having this conversation. I mean, we've absorbed stuff from the uh, black freedom movement and the civil rights movement so thoroughly that, that we've forgotten what it was about um, in our culture. But, uh, you know, we wouldn't have become, be having this conversation if it were about race um, in the same way. But, you know, the freedom song, 99 and a half won't do, comes to mind. Uh, we want freedom... And and ninety nine and a half percent won't do, right?
1: Reminds um, me of that Malcolm X quote yes. too, right? That you stab me in the back and you pull the knife out halfway, you expect me to be grateful? Well, right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. yeah.
0: Um, justice requires more of us, um, and and neutrality is is uh, again not a way that we're ever going to get to a world as it should be. I
2: was also going to say that you know, saying that. And some of this, uh, CBF would say things like, you know, uh, there are not that many LGBTQ people in the fellowship, so this shouldn't be that big of a deal. And you know, as a woman in ministry, I keep you know going back to the statistic that um, there's only only ninety five percent or only five percent of senior pastor positions are um, actually held by women, right? And there's a reason why. Um, some of these things are happening but it's the same thing right um, why would you discriminate against someone um, just because you don't think there's that many of them around that um, just fall short of what I feel like God is calling us to do um, and how God calls us to see um, each other
0: mm. yeah. yeah I mean the, the other thing that um, I think is important to point out is that when we you know when we say that God takes sides, I also think it's important to to say that um, God is to some degree on the whole world side, but only after things have been made right so mm-hmm. so um, I like to help folks reread the Magnificat, for instance of um, God throwing the mighty down from their thrones and lifting up the lowly and sending the rich away empty, which is a line that hits like a ton of bricks every time you read it in a church that's affluent, right? Yeah. Um, but what if that's good news for the mighty and the rich? That God is going to send us away empty and knock us off the thrones that are destroying us from the inside out. Mm. And that um, maybe it's good in the long run. God plays the long game, right? Maybe it's, maybe it's good that God has to knock us off our thrones and send us away empty, um, so that the world can be made right. And that we can live in a place where, um, all people have what they need and live in abundance. Right. Um, so maybe we don't need to hear that God is on the side of the poor as, 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 uh, threatening to us and, you know, um, necessarily, uh, maybe we need to hear it as God trying to reconcile all people.
2: I'm also just, quite frankly, going back to the CBF stuff, uh, tired, right, <laughs> of having this conversation about, you know, whether LGBTQ folks can be fully included, right? And I have very gifted uh, friends and mentors and leaders um, who are helping us have this conversation. So it just is tiring and feels degrading to me uh, to continue to have conversations at denominational le- levels about whether these folks can be included in helping us work towards the kingdom not.
1: Like I, I sense in what you're saying, something. On one of our friends, Cody, who's another pastor, said that that he's tired of people questioning whether or not he gets a seat at the table. Right. Mm-hmm. That he just wants to do the work and wants to be a part of bringing the kingdom of God into the world, right. and is grown tired of people questioning his place, even being a part of that. Right. right. And and
0: you know. And we'll go into spaces where that is not questioned so that he can do the work that God is calling him to do. And the question for me is, why would we not want people like Cody Sanders um, at, our table. Do, at our table doing amazing kingdom work? Or Maria Swearingen, who says, you know, uh, we're, we're busy building a, a more inclusive, more beautiful church than, than, you know, this small vision of what God is doing, and, and we'll even invite you when this is all said and done, right? <laughs> we, you know, uh, there, there's a vision that our LGBTQ minister friends are casting for us that uh, looks a lot more like the vision that I see in scripture of God's kingdom than, than the smallness of, uh, of this conversation we've been having. in Greenwood Forest. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next time.
2: All right, ready? Here we go.
0: We're excited to be here today to talk about Jesus.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I'm excited about Jesus.
2: (laughs) Oh, God. Okay.